HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting healthy food that tastes great. Visit bobsredmill.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome John T. Edge, an award-winning author, culinary historian, director of the Southern Foodways Alliance at the University of Mississippi. His most recent book, The Potlicker Papers, A Food History of the Modern South, was published last May. On today's show, we're going to talk to John T. about retelling the story of the history of Southern food, about Southern food coach culture, and we'll hear John T.'s Julia moment. Stay tuned, and we'll tell you all about a Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we're going to launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. So Julia was all about understanding and sharing what she learned about local and regional cooking and agriculture, which very much defines the South, both as a region of great cultural depth, albeit a bit complicated, when it comes to cooking and crops. Further, someone raised at the crossroads of the Midwest and the South by New Yorker transplants I'm keenly aware of coastal elites' dismissive assumptions about what the rest of the country is like. It's with great surprise that many Northerners learn that the South not only has a rich food history, but that it also possesses more than its fair share of important chefs, home cooks, food writers, and food aficionados. To wit, 
I'd argue the South may possess more people who actually do their own cooking. But that's just anecdotal. The Foundation has been very pleased to help support John T. Edge's work as a contributing writer at the Oxford American Magazine, often referred to as the New Yorker of the South. In these fractured times, the Foundation felt it was more important than ever to shine on light on the many perspectives that make up what it means to be American. So today, I'm really pleased and thrilled, actually, to have the esteemed writer and historian John T. Edge on the podcast. There are few writers more knowledgeable about what is going on in the South in terms of its food, culture, and history than John T. So Yankees, prepared to be enlightened. Southerners, y'all just be nodding along. Welcome to the podcast, John T. Thanks so much, Todd. Thanks for the warm welcome. My pleasure. So I wanted to start the podcast, rather challenging note, but by dispelling some preconceptions particularly in terms of what people know about Southern food and culture. Because I think, sadly, there are negative prevailing stereotypes about the South being backward and racist still persist. And so I wanted you to have the opportunity to kind of redefine what the South is and means today. So what would you say for yourself and your knowledge are really the three things that people should have in mind when they think of today's South? Well, I mean, I guess I would begin by um, by asking you to think about that word "prevailing" that you used in the setup. Um, I understand the stereotypes that are often applied to the South and have been applied to the South as a as a backward place, as an unsophisticated place, as a racist place. Um, but the idea that we would say those are prevailing is if those have been and are and will be. Um, that's troublesome because I think what we're recognizing in this American moment is that many of the issues that have long roiled the South, um, racism and its persistence, um, class discrimination, gender inequity, are actually American problems. Um, and they're writ um, small or large. I can't remember how that should be said. Um, they're writ small in the South. But... You know, and I say this, um, you know, as a Southerner, and I recognize that that my people can oftentimes be defensive, and oftentimes the root of that defensiveness is a recognition that that those very problems, those very issues, do roil our region. Um, but in this moment, um, it, I think it's quite clear that Southern problems and American problems are one and the same. The great taint of enslavement and the unspooling of that by way of Jim Crow um, and more recent um, acts of terrorism and hate um, are American issues. Now, having said all that is my preamble, <laughs> so if you forgive me a soapbox, um, I think, I, I'm giving it to you. I I, I I don't have any disagreement with that. Carry on. <laughs> um, and I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, but there is something about a, a Southerner. If you put a bunch of Southerners in a room together, and they'll begin running down the South uh, because they're, you know, if they're thinking Southerners or the Southerners are paying attention, they're angry at the South for the bad decisions that, that our leadership has made over time and the ditch into which... Um, our leadership has driven our cart. Um, and yet, 
if I try to look as honestly as possible at my region, and and that's kind of my charge in writing for the Oxford American, um, um, which I've done now. Oxford American's at issue 100, and I started writing for issue 20, um, which I just realized this morning and prepped for this conversation. I went back to the very first issue that I wrote for the magazine. It's like, damn, that was issue 20. Um, well, and that you wrote for 80 issues. That That's an impressive number as is on. And I didn't write for all 80, um, but but that's probably 60 of them, 70 of them. Um, but what I've, what I've come to apprehend over that time and in the time working with the Southern Freeways Alliance and, and writing this most recent book is that I see fitful progress in the South. So if I were to try to define, you know, three things that, that really, um, that represent the South today, I'd say the South is a place of fitful progress. I'd say the South is a place of um, kind of dawning diversity. Um, I see the South changing before my eyes, and I see that through food. I see our son who turns 17 on Tuesday. Um, You know, the barbecue sandwich of my youth is the tacos al pastor of his youth. Um, and I see that, that larger point I made a moment ago, that, that um, these problems that we tend to situate in the South, and for good reason, because in many cases the most extreme examples of racism can be situated in the South. And yet, as I look up from my region and look out into the rest of the country, I see, um, you know, I, I see the things that... Um, trouble the waters here or trouble in the waters everywhere. Um, so I accept the, I accept the stereotypes um, and uh, try my best to confront them. And I, and I recognize, boy, this is a long answer. Um, I recognize that, that um, my job as a thinker and writer and, and academic director is to retell a Southern story as honestly as I possibly can by looking directly, by not flinching, by, as Patterson Hood, the singer of the Drive-By Truckers, um, talked about staring down the shame. Um, If I can stare down the shame and regard my region clearly and honestly, then um, what emerges out of that is a recognition that the South is a complicated place. The South is a flawed place. The South is a diversifying place. The South is an honest place. Um, and uh, I wouldn't be anywhere else. No, I, th- I think that's a terrific summary. And I, th- I think that's so interesting that you said the Southern problems are America's problems, because I think that, sadly, that that's becoming more apparent. And a lot of people, particularly outside the South, had maybe buried their heads in the sand that as long as everyone used politically correct language, racism and discrimination were eliminated. And that correct language does not eliminate behavior. And uh, I would say that, do you think that actually... Because I think some of what I want to do is is to look, particularly regions that have difficult paths, often get caught up in blame and shame, and that discussion overwhelms what is positive. And I was going to say that I wondered if some of that 
intensity comes from that actually in the South there is more cultural mixing, or at least historically there was, than in other places. Because I was also going to say that I think one of the things I was looking at is Americans tend to underappreciate how much Southern food is American food, that it, it, is, it, it infiltrated all of the way Americans eat. And to differentiate the two, it isn't really accurate or fair. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, I, I, I do think that Southern food and American food are, are, um, are codependent products of this experiment in democracy. Um, and, you know, you could just take one particular food. You could look at, you know, um, you could look at fried chicken. Um, and, um, you could think about fried chicken today, which for a wide swath of America is a fast food dish. Um, Mm. and no matter how much I might, um, valorize the fried chicken, um, that, that Paul Fairbach say cooks at Big Jones in Chicago, paying homage to Edna Lewis and her beautiful recipe, I recognize that um, for much of America, um, that product um, is fast food, and that product is KFC, or um, with a little luck, it's it's Popeyes, which is a, a better bird, but it's fast food. Um, mm. And if you unpack fast food in America, you recognize that, um, at least as, as I see it, um, Fried chicken is fast food. It is an adaptation of a traditional dish. It's not truly a subversion of a traditional dish. It's an attempt. Um, fast food fried chicken um, gains popularity in the late 1960s and, and early 1970s as the South and, and America as a whole suburbanizes. Um, and as um, as women enter the workforce and leave kitchen stoves behind, we see, you know, Colonel Harlan Sanders, um, um, not a native of the South, someone who claims the South, he claims it with great vigor, um, takes on the mantle of the South, the trappings of the South, the, the white jacket and bolo tie, um, the kind of plantation mean, the um, implied um, African-American cooks who would supply a plantation um, dandy like Sanders. All of those things are wrapped up in this product introduced in the late 1960s, early 1970s, wherein a traditional food that might have been skillet fried um, in, in lard becomes for modern-day consumers, pressure-fried um, and served in buckets um, from a drive-through instead of um, on a dining room table at midday. Um, so that process is both Southern and it's American, and it results in a product that is hyper-American, that's sold by way of Southern tropes, um, and has become a standard bearer for what American culture is as it kind of metastasizes across the world. And you see, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken um, early in the history of that brand. It goes international. By the 70s, it's international. 
um, and becomes a beacon for American culture. And it's a Southern product commodified um, to represent um, modern America and sold um, by way of Southern tropes. That's a great and problematic American story. Well, I'm afraid I've let you just box yourself back into a corner because we're a foodie show on a foodie network. So that's... Uh, it's a great business case in terms of how Southern culture has become part of a glo- six, the American global business success story. But it probably doesn't define what the South has contributed in a more uh, progressive way to 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 American food. So maybe may I give you give an example outside of, of fast food where Southern food culture has really pervaded in a more maybe home cook way. I'm not trying to be a foodie, though. I'm trying to be honest about <laughs> about the South, and I do think of that product as an example of what the South has contributed, whether that's contributed in a positive way or a negative way or just plain contributed. Um, I, I think it's um, I, I think it's worth considering that. Now, if you if you want to step into um, something that is kind of thought of as hyper traditional and um, and an emblem of a, of a more positive South, um, though it comes with, with its own um, critique, um, we could consider a food like barbecue, um, which um, you know, has in the first decade of the 21st century, I think, um, became um, kind of America's national folk food. Um, it came to symbolize um, as Danny Meyer opened Blue Smoke in New York and um, as pitmaster um, acolytes descended upon the South to learn at the feet of people like Ed Mitchell of Wilson, North Carolina, or Sam Jones of Aden, North Carolina, or Rodney Scott of Hemingway, South Carolina, um, as you know, pitmaster isolites descended on the South, they came to, in the same way that, like, you know, kids from Brown um, or, you know, or Yale descended on the South in the 1960s to sit at the feet of aged bluesmen and learn guitar licks. Um, In the 2000s, um, America began to rediscover barbecue um, and the import of barbecue, um, and they came south looking for honest interpreters of that food. Um, and in doing that, they discovered um, men and some women um, who were not only possessed of kind of muscle memory of how to cook, but um, showed great and keen intelligence and in how to run their businesses um, how to um, wrest the most flavor and savor out of a pig flank. Um, They came to kind of apprehend this kind of ancient American cultural phenomenon that was still vibrant in the 21st century. And they were kind of gobsmacked by that, that, that something that seemed so ancient could still exist in a commodified, strip-malled, modern American moment. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, both those truths um, are worth thinking about when you think about the South, that 
fried chicken has become um, an icon of commodified fast food and barbecue has been commodified, uh, traditional food commodified um, and valorized by American culture. And both are true about the South and both, um, both those narratives depend upon the South and Southerners. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed as a someone raised in Kansas City, which certainly claims itself to be a barbecue capital, and any Kansas Cityan worth their salt will tell you it's the best and only barbecue worth eating in the country. But I'm conscious it didn't arrive in Kansas City on a spaceship. I'm assuming that the origins of barbecue and pitmaster culture are based in slavery. They, they surely are. They're based in enslavement. Um, and, you know, migrations up and out of the South, the, the traditionally defined Deep South, um, get us barbecue in St. Louis. They get us barbecue in Kansas City. Um, they get us barbecue in Chicago. Um, the Great Migration um, and, and the various smaller migrations that pull people up and out of the South in search of economic independence and opportunity means that um, a food that was kind of codified and um, styles that were codified um, in days of enslavement and in Jim Crow find um, some of their best expressions um, outside of the South. And I, I'm a big fan of of uh, barbecue um, in Kansas City. My favorite current day um, barbecue there is LC's um, um, over behind the stadium. And um, the proprietor um, is from both Do you mean the Kansas City um, Chiefs Stadium? Yeah. Yeah, and he's from Bovina, Mississippi. Um, he is a deeper Southerner um, who found... Um, you know, who found his metier in Kansas City. Well, and, and I was going to say that the tradition of barbecue must be very uniquely American because you don't, it's not like you find it, at least in the American form in Africa. So would you say it, it, it's a, did it emerge in plantation culture where slaves were adapting what they, what was available for them to eat and cook to, to their new life? There or? are a bunch of different ways to, Kind of situate barbecue, you can situate it in the Caribbean, um, which is an arguable origin point for smoked meat cooked over wood, wooden frames. Um, you could also, um, situate barbecue as we know it in, um, uh, the slave labor camps, which, um, is a term I've come to use more often than um, plantation because it's more accurately representative of what those camps um, engendered. Um, they were places where enslaved people labored. Um, so, yeah, both of those narratives work. Um, barbecue as we know it, as we know it today, um, you know, you can find direct linkages back to um, Tobacco harvests on the eastern flank of North Carolina, um, and um, and the like. Uh, those origins are deeply important. And now I think we've come to a moment when you know we're open about discussing those origins and open to understanding how barbecue became an American folk food. And it's you know has that that all has its roots in enslavement. 
So I want to, I don't want to lose time. So I wanted to switch gears a tiny bit and, and maybe you can relate it up. So is many of your listeners might not be familiar with the Southern Foodways Alliance and you had, I know, a relatively long history with them and it is important and well-regarded organization. So could we take a moment, just kind of tell people what it is and what kind of is the current focus at the Alliance? Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so the the Southern Blue Age Alliance was founded in 1999 um, um, at a meeting of 50 um, founders um, who came together. It was everyone from um, Edna Lewis and Leah Chase um, to John Edgerton and Natalie Dupree, um, all of whom saw promise in documenting and studying the food culture of the American South. Um, John Edgerton was the, was the primary um, uh, dreamer, um, and John had written two really good books at this point in his life, a book about the generation before the Civil Rights Movement in the South, the promise of all those kind of wild-eyed dreamers um, who, with whom he, he um, had much in common, and he'd written a book about Southern food called Southern Food, and so from the beginning, the SFA has attempted to tell stories about the South, and in doing so, to bridge race, class, and gender gaps, and more recently, um, taking note of the rapid diversification of the South, um, we've made every effort to privilege stories from newer Southerners, from immigrant Southerners. Um, we do that through oral history work. We've collected, processed, and digitized and shared um, almost a thousand oral histories of, you know, barbecue pit masters and, and fried chicken cooks and, and oystermen and farmers and, and a car parker in Atlanta. I mean, just a, a wide variety of folks that tell a story of food. We've made a about a hundred films, um, and all of those are also on our website at southernfoodways.org. Um, we produce a journal called Gravy um, and a podcast um, also called Gravy, um, and um, we stage uh, four symposia a year. Um, each year we adopt a different theme. This year we're exploring food and literature. Um, is kind of twinned creations, or twined would be twined or twinned. <laughs> um, both could work. Um, creations of the South, they're kind of totems of the region, and both have something to say to the other. Um, so all of it is focused on storytelling with the idea that the stories that we used to tell about the South, and this comes back to your kind of stereotype question, you know, Southerners embrace those stereotypes too. Um, Many of them they found more useful, the kind of moonlight magnolia stereotypes. White Southerners embraced those. Um, and the storytelling that used to be done about the South and the storytelling that Southerners used to do about themselves often limited the South. And we believe that honest storytelling about the region centered in contemporary um, life can reframe our understanding of the South and, and can affect positive change on the South. So that's what we attempt. Well, thank you for filling us in on that. And so I think we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back to continue the conversation with John T. about his latest book, The Potlicker Papers. And I think we can continue also the conversation because that relates quite clearly to 
that another form of storytelling. So we'll be right back to talk further with John T. Leo and Lucy are back with their latest Bob's Red Mill taste test. We're comparing Bob's Red Mill grain-free paleo pancake and waffle mix to the Bob's Red Mill protein pancake and waffle mix. Now, we tend to make our pancakes from scratch in our house, so we're all curious to see how these mixes from Bob's Red Mill measured up. The batters were certainly easy to make, as the protein pancake mix only requires a bit of extra water. We kept to the grain-free paleo pancakes mix's paleo-friendly recipe, adding just a couple eggs, a bit of water, and a small amount of melted coconut oil, which I have to admit I've never tried before. The grain-free paleo pancakes had a similar texture to traditional pancakes, but the primary flavor we got was coconut. Now, if you're a coconut fan, as Lucy is, she devoured at least five, then you're in luck. Leo preferred the richer, but lighter, protein pancake mix. Stay tuned, as this has inspired a couple more Bob's Red Mill pancake taste tests to come. It's all a reminder that when you're looking for great-tasting, quality, healthy food, take it from Leo and Lucy, you can count on Bob's Red Mill. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JULIASKITCHEN, all one word, in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products, including their pancake and waffle mixes. If you've never read John T. Edge's work before, he's quite simply a terrific writer. Never fails to take you on a journey into the mindset of his subjects, and you'll always feel like you're right on the ground with him, whatever the setting. He also has a gift for making the academic accessible, as you might have just been listening to. So, John T., your new book has a title that I think conveys a lot of meaning, but if you haven't actually delved into the book, the meaning might be a bit obscure. So, could we start there? Tell us more about what the title, The Pot Liquor Papers, both means and means to you of why you picked it. Um, yeah, if you, if, you, if you grew up in the South, pot liquor makes a lot of sense to you. If you didn't grow up in the South, it, it may be befuddling. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a simple thing. It's, pot liquor is when you cook a pot of greens, um, or beans for that matter, but we usually think of those as greens, like mustards or collards or turnips. When you cook them down, usually with a, a hunk of pork bobbing in there, but more recently I cook my greens with, with fish sauce instead of pork. Um, it gives you that same umami punch. But when you <laughs> cook, the, cook that pot of greens down, um, and you have it at a low simmer for a good long while, um, and then it's time to serve. When you when you pull the greens out, there's a liquid that remains at the bottom of the pot. Um, this kind of distilled essence of the greens and the pork or the fish sauce or whatever flavorings you use. That liquid at the bottom of the pot, that kind of distillate at the bottom of the pot, is pot liquor. Um, it's where um, the greatest flavor resides, and it's also, um, as the greens cook, nutrients leach out into that pot liquor. So it's where the the um, it's where that nutrient um, uh, payout payload 
um, resides as well. Um, and so I use it in the book as, as a kind of metaphor. Um, I wanted to cook down various stories about the South and get to the distilled essence, to the greens, um, and what they told me and what by staring into the bottom of the pot you could realize. Well, yeah, I picked up that holistically looking at the book, it's kind of an exploration of culinary injustice in terms of who got credit for what, both in Southern food and then by extension, American food. So is it was that something that came out of developing the book or did you really approach the book of a, as a step in the retelling of a story that you could say is missing key parts and least in the historical canon? Yeah, I mean, I really did want to, in many ways, you know, I mentioned John Edgerton a moment ago in his book, Southern Food. Um, he began to tell the story of the South um, in a way that exhumed the narratives of people who had been left out. And I felt like a responsibility, a calling to continue that work. Um, and to tell as honest a story about the South as, as is possible. Um you know, there's a kind of tendency in the American narrative to leave out the uncomfortable parts. There's a tendency to share the American narrative as a, as a triumphant one. Um, and yet, when I started to look honestly at my region and tried to make sense of my own relationship to the South, why was it that... I felt in equal measure deeply proud of my region and its people and deeply angry at my region and its people. What's the root of that? And is it um, these historical moments that I share in this book? I think that what the historical moments I share in this book and the kind of narrative arc I share in this book represents that kind of tension between love and hate, between um, a celebration and a lament. Um, and if you're paying attention in the South, um, those trains are running on parallel tracks. I think a lot of our listeners might be familiar with where that, where your anger might come from. But I think what, what doesn't get discussed enough is maybe the pride part. And because I think if you've met Southerners, they are proud. Um, and what are some of, you know, either from the book or in general, you think are those those points of pride that are particularly maybe under-recognized or under-appreciated by others? Well, I mean, you can start with, you know, this fidelity, I think, that we all feel to the place that birthed us. I mean, that, that's the kind of um, hardwired uh, human experience. But beyond that, as a Southerner, um, you know, if I focus just solely upon American creativity and look at um, literature and focus on the works of someone like, say, Zora Neale Hurston um, uh, of Eatonville, Florida, and you look at her novels, like Their Eyes Are Watching God um, and her nonfiction work, her anthropological work. Um, you know, she's one of the most signal and important um, novelists and writers of the 20th century. She is a Southerner, and she was a proud Southerner, making sense of her region, challenging the people of her region, telling as honest a story as she could 
of this place. And that's just the beginning. I mean, we can look at Richard Wright, a native of Mississippi, his novel Black Boy. We can look at William Faulkner, um, who, as a boy, played in a field cat a corner from my house here in Oxford, um, a Nobel Prize winner. Um, we could think about um, we could think about music and forms of music, jazz, blues, gospel, signal American art forms that came out of this place that I claim, um, this conflicted place, this flawed place. But it, those signal American art forms originated here, found um, strength here and flower here. Um, I, I think about this this thing that John Edgerton, I use this in the introduction of the book, but John Edgerton talked about what he called the unwritten law of compensation, simplistically overstated, in which bad places make good books, good music, good art, and good food. The more messed up a place is, the more inventive and freewheeling its creative forces he said. Richly varied forms of artistic expression seem to burst forth from violent or repressive or otherwise dysfunctional societies. So that's how I see the South. Um, no, I was just I was just thinking about as you were describing the the representative talent that the South has produced, that it, it I was like, gosh, is that reflective of the the both mixing and the conflicts that were created somehow inherently spurred more creativity out of either necessity or influence or both. Yeah, I had another touchy uh, question because I, I've noticed your I would say expanding commitment to writing about the South in terms of its hard truths and in terms of its unsung heroes and in retelling that story. But for listeners who don't know, you are you are a white man and. How I assume and I know that you've come under pressure sometimes for, you know, gaining acclaim for writing about um, stories that African-Americans might deserve credit for. So what's your retort or how do you reconcile, you know, your white dude, white dude writing about, you know, retelling African-American stories of the South? It's, it's a great question. Um, I, I think it's. It misses by by one hair, and it is like the stories that I attempt to tell are stories about the South. The South is, for the longest time, a place we might apprehend as a as a biracial region of black and white, of West African and Western European. Um, more recently. Um, the South is best understood as a multi-racial, multi-ethnic place. Um, so, for me, one of the one of the problems of the South for the longest time was that the storytelling that originated out of the South gave the white perspective. Um, whites control the narrative, um, and now here we are in a moment when writers and others are attempting to tell stories from as many perspectives and take into account as many perspectives as possible. So as a writer working in the South today, I do my darndest to survey the different perspectives um, and, and, and present a story that is multivalent, that, um, that reflects uh, 
black lives, white lives, um, a wide range of people of color who, who now claim the American South as their own. So my fear is backsliding into a white perspective and not, um, well, I'll just, I'll stop there. My, my fear is that in this moment when we all are taking stock of who tells whose stories, my greatest fear would be to backslide into white people telling white people stories, white people um, claiming the megaphone again. Um, I hope that by telling stories of the South, um, as a white man, I'm looking honestly and openly at my region and uh, sharing the mic with people of color, sharing the mic with women, um, and hoping and praying that together our voices render a more honest reflection of our region and country. Thanks for that. I, that's actually a great segue into my next question, which is um, that I'm glad we have time to cover is to tell us more about your latest article and the accompanying video, um, which the foundation had something to do with for the 100th issue of the Oxford American, because I think that that story very much encapsulates where you're going. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's a I learned how to write writing for that magazine for the Oxford American. Um, I learned how to take an edit, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> which is you know not always the easiest thing to do for a young writer. Um, one of the things you know that I'm very interested in is if I say I'm genuinely open to all perspectives, and if I call BS on myself and and uh, and and open myself to critique. Um, what's realized. And um, a couple of years ago, I um, I had dinner with um, Tunde Wei, um, who has since become a good friend and collaborator. Um, and Tunde, um, who now lives in New Orleans, had, had lived in Detroit before that, and uh, um, is a native of Lagos, Nigeria, um, um, Tunde challenged me over dinner one night in New Orleans, um, asking me um, what right I had um, to tell the stories I was telling. Um, and um, in that challenge um, was born a column for the Oxford American Magazine, wherein we went back and forth um, in, um, in an exchange that was, from Tunde's part, unflinching, and I hope from mine, um, about what such a conversation could yield. And now we've looped back again, this time with me reporting on a dinner series that Tunde stages um, peripatetically, uh, you know, kind of across the country. Um, I've come to admire greatly um, the way that Tunde challenges people and asks them to kind of sit in their discomfort and understand how restaurants are not always places of comfort, but can be sites of inequity. And Tunde manages to do that with great ferocity of intellect and um, a wicked sense of humor and a lot of kindness, too. Yeah, I thought one of the things that I was really struck by, and I cannot um, and highly recommend the article and the video enough, I'll come to at the end of the episode, letting people know where to find it. But I was really struck that when you step away from from all of it, I was left with 
the thing that people don't think about the most that's inherently racist and biased about restaurants and particularly any restaurant of sort of any ethnicity or angle is access to capital. And that when you have a system that's fundamentally advantaged to the elite, whoever they are, but they're usually white, it it, it makes the entire system unequal. And that's what I came up with was actually this sort of like business analysis of, of the cultural arguments that that's one of the fundamental reasons why the system is still rigged. I, I think that's a great point, and it's the exact point. I don't think we would be in these pitched argument about who gets to tell whose story if um, – the means of production, as it were, if um, you know the restaurant or the the uh, publication or whatever it might be was backed by enabled by capital from people of color, capital from Black Americans, um, access to that capital gives you access to the megaphone, it gives you access to the stove to tell your story of your heritage and your people by cooking and serving, um, you know, access to capital is at the root of all of these problems. I, I was just going back and forth this morning on email with a friend, Kathleen Purvis, who's the really fine writer for the Charlotte Observer. And Kathleen was talking about uh, a Mexican-American baker um, in Charlotte um, who was losing her restaurant by way, because of a family dispute, a divorce settlement. Um, and we both were dreaming like, okay, how's she going to come back? What's, what, what's her next act going to be? And Kathleen pointed out quite readily that, you know, the problem here is access to capital. How readily can she come back? What avenues to capital does she have? Are her avenues restricted because she's a person of color? She's a newer immigrant? And the answer is yes. Um, she's supremely talented, um, but does her panaderia um, not make a return engagement? And does some white person with easy access to capital open a faux panaderia down the street because they do have the money to do it? And the answer may be yes. You know that that's the big question. Um, it gets us out of kind of rancorous. Um, you know, kind of squabbles and gets us into big systemic American problems, which is access to capital for people of color. Yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating linkage that that you make through a, a very compelling and Tunde's personal story and, and interesting stories about about food. And it's it's a big question to uh, to solve, but an incredibly important one to keep in in the public consciousness. So we're going to take a quick last break. When we come back, John T is going to reveal his personal Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. 
We Get Real with Food Network's Manit Chauhan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she inspired them in their career. So, John T., what's your Julia Moment? <laughs> um, it's, it's really personal and, and really beautiful. Um, well, good. that's what we expect, so go for it. <laughs> That's what you hope for, right? Um, we're batting, we're batting a thousand, so don't let us down. Well, when I was first starting out um, as a writer, so this was, I think, my first Oxford American piece was published in 1998, um, and this was around that same time, 98, 99. Um, I went to the Symposium for Professional Food Writers at the Greenbrier. Um, in um, West Virginia. And uh, Tony Allegra um, was the director of it. Um, I remember at that conference, um, Russ Parsons from the LA Times was there, Jessica Harris was there, um, Daphne Durvin um, was there, uh, people who were mentors to me, kind to me. um, And, you know, Julie Child was there. Um, Julie Child was there, um, you know, sitting in the back of the audience, um, fully engaged in the conversations and presentations, um, not, you know, there, there was no click of a handler surrounding her. She was an audience member, um, and she had smart things to say about the presentations, suffered no pomposity, and was just a great, genial presence, um, when when the day wrapped up, um, you know, I saw kind of um, Jessica and Tony over talking, conspiring, and they looked back my way. And the next thing I knew, it had been decided that I would be the person who would um, who would uh, escort Julia back to her room. Um, and um, so so I did, um, and. Um, and uh, she um, wanted to stop along the way and get a martini um, and and goldfish crackers, which was the thing she wanted. <laughs> yep, two things she valued very well in life. <laughs> um, so it, it was my job to provision the goldfish crackers, which I did because I do believe the hotel knew what um, Julie Child wanted as a snack. Um, and um, and then it was my pleasure after said provisions were were um, accessed for me to offer my arm and walk Miss Child to 
to her room. And I, I don't really have a recall of what was said um, after that, but um, I do recall that um, about a month later, um, I got a, um, a postcard from Julia Child um, uh, because I had invited her to the first Southern Foodway Symposium, which was in around that same time. And she had written, you know, I'm so proud of what you're doing. Uh, I'm so sorry I won't be able to make it. Um, and, um, you know, that, that moment um, and the grace she showed meant a lot to me. And the follow-through mean, meant even more that she was paying attention. Um, so, yeah, it was a beautiful moment. That that is a lovely one, and I I did not know any of that because I know many of those people from the symposium for food writers. And if you've never been to the Greenbrier in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, which is pretty much as close to the middle of nowhere as you can get, it's definitely a unique and uniquely southern experience. Albeit it might be north of the Mason Dixon line, I'm not sure. Well, thanks, John T, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate the good questions and the and the honest engagement. And uh, you know, I hope I didn't too, go too hard in the paint for the South. Well, we'll we'll see what our listeners say. So, thanks to everyone for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact JuliaChildFoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook. Search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter. Our handle's at JuliaChildJCF. And if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at T-Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. The foundation's also on Instagram. Search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. To learn more about John T. Edge and his writing, you can go to johntedge.com. And you can find his book, The Potlicker Papers, your favorite bookseller. It's a, 19, it's a 2017 Penguin Press book. As John mentioned before, for more information about the Southern Foodways Alliance, and you can even become a member, go to southernfoodways.org. The 100th issue of the Oxford American is out right now. Go to oxfordamerican.org to order your copy. And while you're there, you can click on the 100th issue cover thumbnail, and that'll give you a link to John T. Edge's piece, The Question of Dinner, which also includes a link to Ethan Payne's companion video, The Question of Dinner, Conversation with Tunde Wei which are, as we talked about, well worth your time. You can follow John T. on social media. His handle is at John T. Edge. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. And thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lawrence Alkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tatashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. If you like the plod- podcast, please give us a review, as that really helps new listeners discover us. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.